in any case, I don't mind doing these, this type of interview or talk because, you know, if I can inspire yeah. younger generations That's of architects or your audience, you yep. know, somebody, or women, I got a good response because for women also it's not that common. And I was always asking myself why. Welcome into today's show. Uh, on today's show, a um, little bit different format today. And, and Mikey, you and I just got back from an incredible time. I mean, not, not only did we go to just an overly special place for, for water feature uh, designers and that. I mean, uh, uh, so we went to John Lautner's office, uh, John Lautner and Associates, uh, and sat down with Helena Arouette. And, you know, such a warm and invitation in there. Um, and then we came into the office, uh, and, and I was blown away. Um, you know, uh, all of her models for all of her recent projects yep. were there. Uh, and you know we kind of have we we sort of have a structure that we, you know we we set up the mics we kind of mm -hmm. got everything ready and you and her were already immediately just right into it while, yeah. while we, were, we were getting everything set up and then tell us what happened because it, it kind of we kind of went off script like immediately immediately and in walking into her upon walking into her office she went right to a model and started describing because uh, we had mentioned models because you and I were discussing models on the way up sure and when we walked in the door I said oh I was just talking to Dave about these models and she says well I model everything <laughs> and then began to show us the models and we didn't realize it for five or ten minutes, but the interview had begun. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and again, but rather than an interview, it was Helena just uh, leading the way and, uh, and showing us. I, it, my job was easy. I just sat back and rode along. <laughs> oh, gosh. And just the, the history and just the, you know, it, it, I, I was just so honored to just be in the uh, space with her. I mean, Absolutely. she just commands such respect and just you know, uh, just be working alongside such an icon of the industry for so long. Yeah. And, and you can really see how she became, uh, you know, a real contemporary of his and, and kind of created her own uh, style and everything and, and just really uh, kind of has done a wonderful job continuing the name of Lautner and Associates. And, and um, you know, and then we just started to get in into some of the, the current projects and some of the previous projects and just, the, it just went everywhere, and, and I was really surprised. Um, I mean, she just kind of started going, and, and we just kind of stood back and, and listened and learned. Rode the wave, baby. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it, it was a good time. A, again, so much, so much knowledge, so much information, so much pedigree there. Uh, it was just incredible, and the works even, I, I, you know, I've been a, a student of Lautner ever since learning about him back in 93 when, when Tisherman took me out onto one of his job sites uh, that was a Lautner project while Lautner was still alive, uh, the uh, Goldstein residence, and uh, didn't know who John Lautner was at, at that first day when I walked in, and David said, you need to look him up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and so I did, and, and, and plus being at the Goldstein house, what an iconic beautiful architectural structure concrete and glass man just doesn't get any better than that and so it, it was exciting to to and and and, and helena was was again was a an extreme part of that she was kind of i think do, do you recall she was the lead architect there yeah. Yeah. yeah and so so she knows it front inside out backwards upside down she knows that particular project so having that person in the room who was as personable and but at the same time commanding as you said, in, in, in such a slight package too, I might, sure. I might add. So she was, uh, she was an incredible. I'm just, I'm still jazzed about the opportunity to go spend some time with her in her office. I know exactly, and and for me, um, you know, I'm I'm a student of architecture, but not nearly as versed as you are. But, but uh, for my money, I got to say that it is as within the water shaping industry. John Lautner is kind of the icon for me. You know, I know, uh, you know, you have you have Wright, um, who's kind of the American icon, uh, mm -hmm. and then um, you know, Lautner is in those discussions. Yep. Um, you know, as as some of the best in uh, in the history of American architecture. But when you take it into the water shaping realm, the amount oh of details that yep. he has innovated, the, the first vanishing edge pool in the country, putting the Sheets Goldstein House, putting acrylic windows in the bedroom in the early 60s. Yeah, I mean, these things were, 
they're they're just catching on. What are we? Fifty years later now. Well, and that's that amazing one too, the the silver top that I had told you about. We and, and we didn't really get a chance to cover that today with her, if I if I recall. But but I've actually been in that uh, backyard before at Silver Top, 1957, battered negative edge, so a battered wall with an I, I wanted to say acrylic because we're just so used yeah, to glass. using acrylic glass panel in the edge wall, 1957. Yeah. Pool guys, what do you think? Right, <laughs> and, and then, you know, in the wall, uh, between the bedroom, you look out of the bedroom uh, in, in Sheets Gold Street, yeah, early yeah. 60s, 62, yeah, yeah, 63. Yeah, yeah. yeah 63. So, uh, you, as, as far as, so if you don't know who John Lautner is, this is going to be a wonderful program. Stay tuned. Uh, and if you do, I just really hope this, uh, you know, kind of enhances your respect and, and uh, just your understanding of what an icon he was uh, and, and just the legacy that he has left to our industry. So really, you're in for a real treat. Stay tuned for this very special episode of the Ask the Masters podcast. This week's episode is sponsored by Pentair. Oh, I, I think that uh, I kind of grew uh, as an architect uh -huh. by being exposed to uh, such fantastic creative jobs. And then I started analyzing and making my own conclusions yeah. Like this one, you know, and I thought, how, how can you explain it to people? Because the general public doesn't know much about architecture sure. because they just don't get the opportunity yeah. to see good architecture. And uh, you cannot send the architecture to a museum like you do paintings or sculptures, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So you actually have to be in the space, and a lot of those buildings are not accessible, you know, to the general public. Unless, of course, it's a theater or a church or a temple or whatever. Yeah, public space, yeah, right. Right. As you learn and work in this, you begin to understand and things have, you know, perhaps a slightly different meaning for me than for other people. But I interpret organic in the sense of uh, you know, the way nature creates, mm. like, okay. for instance, <laughs> uh, a mountain or a tree are shaped a certain way because it makes sense. Nature made them so the trunk is usually heavier, the, the branches are cantilevered, yeah. they're proportionally yeah. thinner yeah. as yeah. they expand. Yeah. Uh, the mountain normally is you know, wider at the bottom, and you can never say, oh, this mountain is a Victorian mountain, <laughs> this tree is a Louis XV tree. Yeah. No, it is beautiful for what it is. Yeah. So, to me, the, the master design is like Mother Nature. Sure. So, what's organic has to do with being inspired in the way nature creates. I mean, you cannot imitate nature and try to design a structure that looks exactly like a tree, for example, but at least understand the concept of how or why, like in every living, or not even living thing, basic, basic organisms uh, are such that everything uh, there has a purpose. They work, and every little thing they have serves a purpose for something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And usually, nature made uh, they're beautiful, or if that's where everybody wants to be. Ugly, you know. Yeah. If they're ugly, uh, that serves a purpose too, like to deter predators, right. scare enemies, mm -hmm. or whatever. But there's a reason, much beyond what you'd think of a style. Then people started inventing styles of just for the purpose of classifying. Mm. Uh, they they would assign a style to everything, which, uh, in fact, the word style for John Lautner was a bad word. Oh, wow. Because um, he got really offended if you'd ask him, well, uh, Mr. Lautner, I heard people ask, what style of architecture do you do? I don't do style. <laughs> 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 because styles, to him, 
uh, are appropriate to uh, fashion design, for instance. You know, you change clothes sure, uh, sure. every year, but a building is supposed to last a long time. Right. So it has to transcend a style, mm -hmm. and usually, if it's good. You know, it would last. Mm -hmm. You know, like uh, cathedrals are timeless. Yeah, you can say Gothic cathedrals, Baroque, or whatever. Right. Yeah, right. But if they're good, they're timeless. Yeah. So that's what, you know, I try to do. I cannot compare what I do to a cathedral, but in the scale I work, I still think that uh, every building has to be good for the purpose it serves. Argentina, that's where I came from. Yeah, could, right. could, could you kind of double back on that though, go a little, back a little further? So you were born in Belgium? Yeah, I was born in Belgium, but as a toddler, I mean, or actually I was ah. four years old when my parents decided to move to Argentina. So it was just the three of us, my parents and me, no, you have no siblings? No siblings. Oh, interesting. No, no so it's Fourth, my daughter is also only child. My father and my grandfather were only children. So there's something in your genes there I, somewhere. I, 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 I don't know. It's a one, I, one, I one up. Know. And even in your work, by the way, one up. That's it, but I don't repeat. Yeah, I try, I try not to repeat. So anyway, uh, as soon as we arrived in Argentina, they put me in a kindergarten so I would learn Spanish, you know, right away, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which I did. And I lived there through university. Mm -hmm. And uh, my parents moved to the States when I was just starting university. Okay. Um, but I wanted very much to study architecture and universities. And there, what was that? What, what got your interest in architecture? Well, uh, as a child, I loved to draw mm -hmm. and sculpt, so my parents saw some talent, you know. For sure. So maybe I could be an artist later. Uh-huh. So they, uh, uh, I had uh, an art teacher come to the house and when I was little, and mm -hmm. I loved drawing. Then I started, you know, doing sculptures. But at the same time, I was very interested in uh, how things were put together. So I would take stuff, mechanical stuff, apart. Mm -hmm. Actually, my father was a mechanical engineer. Oh. I had no architects in the family. But I liked working with my hands, building things. I would build little, you know, shelters for the pets. Yeah. Or, so hands-on, you know, working with tools. Because uh -huh. uh, if anything broke, my father normally was the one, you know, to fix stuff. And I thought, well, he's out working. He can do it. I can do it. So, <laughs> so I, I would fix whatever broke. Yeah, you know? yeah. And... Uh, and then I loved putting things together, and also my parents read a lot, constantly were going back and forth to the library, uh -huh. and I loved reading books and uh, about history also, uh -huh. you know, uh -huh. history, you learn incredible things, you know, you read as a child, Three Musketeers, mm, and yeah. then I thought, well, who was this Louis XIII, and who was this cardinal, so I would go look it up. <laughs> and, and then find styles, and then I got interested in history of art. Okay, so all right. I thought, hey, you know, how can I combine all this? Because mm -hmm. I had no clue what's architecture. Mm -hmm. uh, and finally, well, I read a book by Frank Lloyd Wright, mm -hmm. and that inspired me. Uh, it was on Frank Lloyd Wright, but by an Italian writer called Bruno Zevi. Okay. who had an architectural magazine later on and uh, I thought well yeah this is it this is what I want to do and then gradually I understood that um, somewhat contrary to um, painting you know like you have a painting on a wall mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's art yeah and uh, then a sculpture, you can walk around the sculpture and yeah. look at it from uh -huh. all sides. Yeah. But later I understood that good architecture is like you're inside the sculpture. Wow. Okay? Yeah. And the space and everything that's around you is the art. Okay. 
but uh, so contrary to say the sculpture that you view by you know seeing it and all sure. now you're inside Mm -hmm. And everything around you, you know, is what, what matters. So and the sense of space, you know, the height, the scale, makes you feel something. It's like your body reacts differently mm -hmm. if you are in a small, you know, sheltered right, space, right. or if you are in a, say, cathedral, you know, or a place with very, very high ceilings, it makes you feel different. Got it. And that's what good architecture is meant to do. University for me was extremely important, first of all, because uh, I, I knew that I could study in Argentina because the best university is uh, totally state-subsidized. I mean, there are private universities, mm -hmm. but uh, we perceive them there as, you know, for the rich kids who don't want no. to work too hard, <laughs> while the national university with yeah. a campus in Buenos Aires, the capital, you know, is very demanding. The workload is hmm. tremendous, but uh, on one hand it's free, mm -hmm. unless you fail the subject then you have to pay, but then it understands the need of students uh, who, need, who have to work, and they encourage the wo uh, working as long as it is in the same field of your studies. Okay. So, um, I, you, you could choose uh, classes like from 8 to 12 um, in the morning mm -hmm. or from 8 to midnight at night, but all the lectures started at 6 p.m. So I would be in a full-time job, uh, construction company, yeah. architectural offices, yeah. all day full-time, yeah. and then at 6 I was in university. Mm, I see. And I was learning uh, stuff in school that I was applying, applying every day everything. because yeah. I would change jobs about every year. So for um, uh, actually more than a year I was a structural drafts person and we use a lot of concrete, wow. reinforced concrete there. Okay. So the first sets of drawings that arrive at the job site are the structural drawings. So these were all high-rises, mm -hmm. mostly. Mm -hmm. So I had to do the drawings and then go to the site and inspect that the rebar was placed correctly. Yep. And then at night I was studying concrete structures in school. Yeah. So I had the theory and the experience. Then I had to do a layout for the structural drawings of the plumbing and electrical okay. because they <clears throat> Excuse me, they had to leave openings to run the ducts and conduits and pipes, so on. Of course, yeah. And then at school, I was studying uh, lighting design, electrical, acoustic, plumbing, heating, and air conditioning. So, with all that, plus we had art, just pure art, architectural design. Mm -hmm and uh, we had like two years of math and four years of structures. Like one year of uh, timber and steel, yeah, yeah. one year of all concrete structures, one year of specialized structures like thin shells and tensile structures. Quite comprehensive, yeah. this education. At yeah. the beginning we need to study surveying, so we were really, really well-rounded. I owe my, a lot of my knowledge, what I already knew before yeah. I started with Laudner, to my school. So I always mention it. Besides, well, it was free. All this work and an application leaves no and time for Gregory in between. I, I don't understand. Yeah, well, he was another reason for me deciding to stay in Argentina. <laughs> we got married, and at that time, you know, as young students, you needed a couple to survive, so yeah, yeah. the wages were, one wage was enough just to pay the rent, mm -hmm. and the second wage was to live on. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then eventually, well, we both graduated, he went to business school, okay. and my parents, who had become American citizens by then, because it's a very long program, architecture there, 
they kept insisting, well, why don't you come and spend a year at least or two with us here in the States? And I said, well, okay, you know, we never intended to come, but mm -hmm. yeah, it's interesting to spend, you know, some time, you know, you work in a foreign country sure, and you sure. go back to your country, oh, well, you were working in the States. When I uh, arrived here, we both, and I learned of Lautner through an acquaintance of my father, who was actually the owner of the Chemosphere House, this house. Yeah, here uh -huh. house. He, was, yeah. he was not really a friend, but they did some consulting work together. Both were engineers. Mm -hmm. And um, he told my father that he knows this great architect. Mm -hmm. And when I heard the name, I remembered Lautner. I had studied John Lautner in school mm -hmm. together mm -hmm. with Frank Lloyd Wright. Yep. That was a time when nobody knew about Lautner here, but in Europe and in South America, he was well known. Really? It, in uh, Europe and South America, where he Europe, had no work? Uh, no, but they, they were interested. The same thing happened Based with Frank Lloyd Wright, I think. The first book on Frank Lloyd Wright was published in the Netherlands. Ah, you know, know when that. nobody or hardly, <laughs> ever, ever, and people did not like. He was different. He was strange. You know. Yeah, yeah. So uh, in any case, I went uh, to. I gave John Lochner a call, and he said, "Oh, come on over." Ah, it was so just a I call. show a up at, at the office. <laughs> And he shows me the first sketches of a house that he was designing in Acapulco. Yeah. And he needed an architect who would know um, architectural concrete, mm -hmm. uh, the metric system, yep. and the Spanish language. Yep. Because the structure engineers were in Mexico. So all the drawings had to be in, in metric and English and Spanish, and by someone who understood concrete structures. This meeting was so meant that to be. Was, <laughs> I qualified for all three, so he hired me. And when I saw the sketches... Wait, wait, hired you right on the spot, or he thought about it a little bit? No, no, he hired me. He said, right there. Yeah, because I didn't know how much to... Uh, how much should I make, you know, how much money. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, I, I just told him, well, uh, you don't know me, you don't know how I work. And I was used back in Argentina to be paid at the end of the month. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, uh, why don't you just pay me for the first month whatever you want? And I worked for a whole month, and then at the end of the month, if you are happy with my work, mm -hmm. I really want to make $4.50 an hour. Mm. <laughs> Which was good. Well, it wasn't laughable. bad. I mean, it wasn't yeah, I'm laughing bad. now, but that wasn't laughable yeah. then. No, yeah, that was nineteen bad. end of 1971. Yeah. Uh, but just in case, uh, I asked him, well, uh, I mean, he said, fine. So yeah. I asked him, well, how much are you going to pay me this first month? And uh, he said, oh, I don't pay anybody more than $3.50 an hour. Oh. Oh. Okay. <laughs> so, so then at the end of the month, uh, or actually we were paid bi-weekly, then I get the next check and it's still $3.50. So I go with the check. Uh, excuse me, Mr. Lautner, are you happy with my work? And he said, oh, yes, you're doing fine. Okay, well, then we have an agreement that if you're happy, you will pay me, you know, four dollars. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so he changed the check. And oh, <laughs> wow. wow, good for yeah. you, though, huh? Yeah, and I that thought, That was confidence wow. in a young woman, in yourself. <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't much. Then I realized, hey, you know, how stupid, but I, I, I didn't know, I didn't know, you It know. wasn't stupid, it worked. But, but it worked, it worked, and, and to me, you know, the stuff that he was designing was like a fairy tale in architecture. Mm. I mean, they were creative. We were creative students. Yeah. We had very good uh, instructors in university who let us do our own thing. They were not trying to push us to, 
do work like say Le Corbusier or Niemeyer or Miss Van der Rohe. No, mm -hmm. they if they saw that we were, you know, in an interesting direction uh, ourselves, you know, they would let us do that. Yeah. So I thought, well, these designs maybe somebody creative can generate them, but to get them built, and John Lautner actually gets them built. So this is fantastic. So did he have a, a, a general contractor that he liked and was he the go-to guy? He had a, a couple of uh, contractors who were the ones who ended up building some of the most interesting work. Mm -hmm. One was Wally Neviadomsky, who had done some work for Frank Lloyd Wright. Mm -hmm. He was based in Chicago. Oh. But at the time, Lautner uh, designed the um, silver top house mm -hmm. that had this shell type. Was of that 1957? Yeah. That the, okay. Right, 56, 57. 57. Uh -huh. He called Wally to work on the house. Okay. And then Wally stayed. And then there was another one called John Delavaux, who just died uh, last year, end of mm. the last year. Uh, he was over 100, you know, when he wow. died. Yeah. Excellent builder. I was lucky enough to be able to to do what I think he would have. In. So yeah. you were so with this remodel, you were able to bring John's what you think right. John's or vision what, overall, or what it would be today. Because again, he would not do the same. Mm. Sure, he would do something better. Because right. he is interesting, he passed away at the age of 83, but he always had a very young mind. He was interested in uh, uh, the newest technologies, and mm -hmm. he wanted to experiment with things. So um, I would tell him that he really had a mind of a 20-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because uh, otherwise, you know, older people, sometimes they get very set in their sure, ways sure. And, yeah. and they continue doing the same thing over and over. Well, he was just the opposite. And then he did an incredible thing by giving me this type of recognition. Usually architects or even Frank Lloyd Wright had a big ego, and so it's the mm. architect and the apprentices. For Laudner, in a way, it was often like architect and the draftspeople. But, uh, you know, later he, I worked for him for 23 years mm -hmm. because I could not find uh, people who have, were more creative. Mm. And it gave me the opportunity. I, I could have started on my own earlier. I mean, I I was licensed when I started yeah. working for him, right. but not in the States. But I, uh, I already had quite a bit of experience in the field because I, I had to work my, my way through school. Uh, I built the model uh -huh. okay, because it was impossible to communicate this in drawings to the client. So the model... Oh, was, sure. Okay? I, I draw so, some too, and it would be hard to draw. So I, uh, <laughs> I, um, I just bent cardboard, you know, corrugated cardboard that uh -huh. you can bend yeah. uh, and curve. So this is uh, the sloping uh, This wall, wall that comes this down, these ends... That blocks the view to the neighbor he never wanted to see. Right. And it starts uh, on a two-to-one slope. Uh -huh. toward the ocean and then gradually becomes vertical and then it starts leaning in the other direction. So I bent this and I cut it and I put it on the site. First we built the site, you know, I built the site. And then I showed it in the plot and well this this would look great but it would be so hard to build. Hard to build. <laughs> let's go. Let's do it. Let's yeah. do it. So anyway, I finished building the whole model. We called the owner, the client. Uh -huh. And, and he said he really liked it. So now it's necessary to do drawings. Mm. So I sort of invented how to do the drawings. I took the model, which was about, about this size, mm -hmm. uh, narrow, maybe narrower, but taller. Uh, I took it to um, a large 
roof terrace that we had in the old building on Hollywood okay. Boulevard. Yeah. And I took uh, 35 millimeter slides, you know, photos. Oh, photographs and model yeah. up in the full sunlight. Right, right, in full sunlight. Lots of I shadows. Plans and yeah. all the elevations with yep. a telephoto lens. Mm. So I would Make minimize the distortion. Exactly. No, no, no. So, so it looked as, as much as um, an actual elevation I as possible, it. not a perspective. Okay. You know, okay, all right, all right. So I took all the elevations and the plan and then went home and projected it by adjusting the projector you know, on a white wall okay. until it was to one-eighth of an inch scale. <laughs> and this taped, is brilliant. Taped a piece of paper ah, yeah. on the wall yeah. and went freehand over the image. <laughs> I okay. love it. So cool. <laughs> the plan and all the elevations. And those became the elevations. Now, what I did since I knew topography also, you know, like yeah. surveyors, especially if you have uh, sloping, you know, sloping mm -hmm. terrain, uh -huh. they do the contour lines, mm -hmm. you know, each contour at, say, whatever, one, two feet intervals. Right. So um, I put it in a grid. This is all before a computer. Sure. Okay? Before a computer. Yeah. I put it in a three-dimensional grid, like X, Y, and Z. Uh, and uh, I had reference points every 50 feet. I went with surveyors to the site, and I had them mark the points you know, to measure from, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because actually there were two grids. And then from the office, I could call Wally Nivedomsky, who was the builder, and tell him, oh, that point is at north... X, Y axis, and yeah, yeah, you got it. Yeah. So, uh, east, so much, elevation, such. Okay. Perfect. And, but then for this wall, I had to draw sections. This one? Yeah, this one. Every 30 inches. That's so the one that them, baffles me on this for side. For them to build the forms. Because yeah. in order just to build the forms, that was mm -hmm. tricky because it, it varies. So, so, what, how, so that's how far math, were the sections? That's, that was math that I remember. I figured out an equation okay. of varying you know, the slope. Yeah. And I, I was able to do all these sections, just in eight and a half by 11. Okay. You know, and yeah. we sent them to the site, or took take them, because I lived on that site practically. <laughs> I would think so. <laughs> yeah, because it so. was so one of a kind. Yeah. So and what, that's so, how it built. It so what built. was the impetus of this, not only this meandering wall, but then the lean this way or the lean that way? I, that just, uh, what's the impetus? What was the design? Well, of because of the inspiration in the ocean as a wave, the okay. terrain was sloping, uh -huh. so the wall was also going like this. And um, the main part of the house was elevated deliberately. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the view was down to the rocks below, so the waves would break on those rocks, mm -hmm. and that was more interesting than just okay. the straight view out. It was a challenge. Could really. imagine building that wall, much less designing Everything it. was yeah. a challenge. Yeah. And the owner was really, really excited. Mm. Mm. See, so the, this is the shape. Oh, this the, is it. The, yeah. the ground floor is pretty much the same garden that goes through, mm -hmm. and there's a little waterfall that comes down the roof and oh, hits the it. top now of I this rock. Oh. So it brings out the color. What of a great the, effect! Of, of the so you're rock. dropping water onto the right. rock, and the rock is very, very tall, standing there. That yeah, would be stalagmite like. And the edge yeah. of this pond is all, well, I, I came up with a stacked uh, slate. Uh -huh. So it has this very rugged edge. Yeah. You see? So this was basically the shape. Mm -hmm. He he needed an eight-car garage because he had collection cars. This is the ground floor, mm -hmm. his eight cars. Oh, I see the garage, yeah. But otherwise, the, this is all, you know, the landscaping and water going through under the house. And the upper floor is where the main entry is. So you can literally drive on this ramp or walk on it, park the car here under the cover of the roof, 
and just walk into the house. You know, we do swimming pool plans every day, and Dave and I both, and we spend a lot of time in this world of looking at plans. I'm, I'm looking at a pool. I'm not looking at a house. I'm not looking well, at these Well, again, views. here, uh, Laudner <laughs> did not want to repeat himself, but the client visited the house in Acapulco, and he insisted on having the railing, we called it the railing pool in Acapulco that went all the way around the upper floor. The Arango house. Yes, in the Arango house in Acapulco. But here he wanted it in his house and we figured, oh well, you know, it's facing the ocean beyond mm -hmm. so it would have the same uh, infinite space type concept, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. know, where the water flows into water beyond. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But you don't get to see the ocean at all as you arrive. You start walking on this ramp, and your view is blocked completely. You know, by, by these walls, the planters. There are skylights, one on top of each one of these cars. Mm -hmm. So you can see the radiator of the car from outside oh. because it, it's lit. <laughs> with natural light, no, and then you enter the detail. house, you open the front door, and then wow, you know, you have the, yeah, you see this. Yeah, brings you into the experience. And, yeah. um, and the interesting thing, I remember being at the site, and the site was still open, <clears throat> and people would just walk in and start looking at things, and they would approach me and ask, why did you paint all this wood gray? <laughs> I said, no, no, this is not, this is concrete, it's just, yeah. it has the texture of the farm boards. Right. Oh, you know, we thought it looks like wood. Because <laughs> Within all of that, and you talked about, you were on the site quite a bit in directing contractors and helping them, tell me, is there anything on the water feature that was a bit of a challenge that you needed help with, or did it all go fairly smoothly? Um... I think it went fairly smoothly mm. at that time. Okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, we had huge pumps, you know, for the waterfall, mm -hmm. uh, 10 HP. We had wow. over, more than what we needed. Of course. So we could graduate, you know, the yeah. waterfall. We had the waterfall in different modes. I see. It could be just very thin, or it could be kind of a rushing mm -hmm. type. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing here is the view, you know, from the yeah. main living room and the bedroom, and the way the roof is curved, it sort of duplicates the, the coastline, you know, it's, it's curving yeah. this way, mm -hmm. and the roof is curving this other way, mm -hmm. so uh, the the way the views are framed mm -hmm. usually make them more interesting uh, as you see them from inside the house than sure. when you're outside. If you're outside, you just see the view, which sure. is a beautiful view. Of course. But the way you frame it, you can frame it. that yeah. makes a big difference sure. too. And again, everything here was on set up to be on voice command on remote oh, and hardwired. Oh, so cool. I had to experiment at the time when nobody was using voice commands yet yeah. with the, the guys who were developing those systems. Yeah. But I realized that they didn't always work because I, I had to <clears throat> to give commands, you know, sure. in whoever's garage or who was working on yeah. that. And depending on the tone of your voice, it would recognize you, you know, the voice recognition system yep. would work or would not work. So yeah. I told, uh, and then there's a problem with the microphones, you know, the range of the microphones. Of course. So I told the owner, well, we can set up for this, but don't install it yet until it's more developed. So that technology, I just that's why I just noticed the, the date that this house was looks like it was produced 79 to 90. Was there a it, remodel or what does that mean? Uh, no, first of all, it took uh, about two and a half years in permits because the next door neighbor didn't like the idea of having <laughs> a house there and that this had to go through Coastal Commission and it was necessary to post a sign at the front of the house, mm. announcing the neighborhood that there was going to be a hearing and so on. Sure. And the next door neighbor had the sign pulled out. You know, every time we put it in, 
And then he said that there was no sign. So he had, we got finally a permit and he had it revoked. So we had to go, uh, the owner had to hire an attorney. Oh, and I remember gosh. we went to a hearing in San Francisco. The attorney recommended going to a place far away yeah. so, so the neighbor Change would not show up. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. So that, that time we, we got it. So it took a long time, first in the permits, then the nature of the house itself, it was all built on time and materials because there was no other way. Of course. And how you no, do nobody that? knew how to, pr <laughs> how to price it. So the, he was a you know, very trustworthy contractor who you know, we knew for years. Uh -huh. and, um, and then the owner himself, he wanted, for instance, this was a, in any case, this is 17 feet long black slab we could not get he did not want any any seams mm. and where do you find a slab that's 17, 17 or 18 feet. feet long yeah so well find it <laughs> find so it, find it. You so you that's start you contacting people <laughs> from africa china all over yeah and finally i rock? found one quarry in Zimbabwe, in Zimbabwe. <laughs> that had black granite uh -huh. and they could cut a slab that size as long as the owner paid for a special blade that could, you know. Yeah, well he said use. find it. But then the cost of the insurance by shipping, because still granite, you know, can be fractured. Sure. There are natural fracture lines, mm -hmm. so there's no guarantee yeah. that it will arrive in one piece. Yeah. And it was just so expensive that the owner decided that okay, he would accept hairline seams, but I had to get prices from at least half a dozen of granite contractors uh -huh. that would bring samples of how invisible a hairline seam they could accomplish. Hmm. And then hmm. he finally chose. Hmm. So all this stuff, you know, takes uh, a lot of time. And money. And money, <laughs> and money. But still it was relatively about a bargain because the, you know, he had an, an accountant on the job site too, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. taking care of ordering or actually making all the payments. Mm -hmm. And I had to uh, do some construction management as well in the sense of approving all the subs, uh, yeah. bills, yeah. and checking that the work was done well and so on. But Wally, the builder, was just fantastic. He lived there. He just moved the trailer. He and his wife were living at the site. Oh, really? Oh, yes. So nothing except the actual structure was touching the roof because otherwise it would look like another support. See this column? I see. And the, yeah. and the sloping wall was all. Everything else stayed short of the roof to the extreme that there was a, a duct because I mean, this was solar heated also. Oh. Custom solar panels. Custom solar panels. Wow. Right. Wow. With heat exchangers on the roof that brought the air down into the floor mm -hmm. and the floor was like three feet deep here, five feet here. So the air, it was radiant air running through the floor. Through the floors. Through the floors. Mm -hmm. And the duct that brought the air from the solar collector down into this space uh, was glass. The upper part was glass. Glass so it, duct? Yes. The, the visible, I mean the section that touched the roof, uh -huh. Uh -huh. which was about four feet short of the roof. Okay. Yeah was a glass duct, because if it was solid, it would have looked like a column You'd or a pier yeah. supporting yeah. the roof. So, well. so everything <laughs> was like the ultimate. We just, we love the water there, and given the fact that one of our founders uh, helped uh, John Lautner in the remodel of this, David Tisherman. Yeah, Dave Tisherman, yeah. we worked together with him yeah. on that. Yeah, Because this this house, again, is a, in constant construction. Mm. Uh, the original owners, 
sold it, I think, in the very early 70s. Mm -hmm. Is that and where the Sheets name came from? I know sheets, the Goldstein, yeah, but I don't right. know Sheets. So. No, no. I actually met Jim Goldstein. I was, I was fortunate enough to be uh, kind of tutoring under David Tisherman in the early 90s, and I was on mm -hmm. this site several mm -hmm. times throughout mm -hmm. that process and got to meet Mr. Goldstein. Well, this was a challenge um, uh, because... Uh, what we did with him was to upgrade the existing swimming pool. Mm -hmm. And when you remodel a traditional swimming pool and change it into an infinity edge, mm -hmm. uh, it's a lot harder to do than when you design that from, from scratch. scratch. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so <clears throat> I remember I worked with Dave on that, you know, designed a stainless steel edge. Oh, I didn't realize that. I didn't and, realize um, that you and he had a relationship then. So. Oh, yes, yes, yes. We were yeah. very closely. Because just about everybody who worked for John Lautner at one time or another worked in the Goldstein house because mm -hmm. it went on forever. And when people would ask the owner, Oh, Mr. Goldstein, when, when are you going to finish the construction? He would just smile and say, never. <laughs> because uh, that's his, his life occupation, yeah. pretty much. So, so I got to do the entry in this pond, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which used to be just a regular fish pond in the mm -hmm. dirt. Okay. So it was upgraded like a main entrance to the house, and also this waterfall. And uh, <clears throat> the problem was at that time, and it was actually, this was done before I met Dave Tisherman, mm -hmm. uh, there were no um, consultants who would tell you exactly what shape of the weir to get this type of flow. So I remember uh, a guy who used to work in the, in the office, Duncan, Mm -hmm. And myself, well, we, we, we made a strip of plywood. And you made a model. Yeah, yeah and, you know, uh, uh, full size yeah. of a section, of course, okay. standing in the water, yeah, holding <laughs> up this, uh, what, this what strip of plywood about this, you know, and, and changing the amount of flow. Yeah. Until yeah. we decided, well, this is the angle that yeah. we need. So it was <laughs> all experimental. <laughs> then I had another idea that I could never accomplish. Uh -huh. In the landscaping, there is a path that goes down his, his property. And uh, <clears throat> he wanted a water feature. So I thought, well, it would be great to have... Um, something sort of like, not exactly a waterfall, but a nozzle that would describe an arc like this, mm -hmm. uh, so you could walk under it. Ah, yeah, okay, yeah. So the, you're walking there and you have, from the hill, because it was sure. very steep, this nozzle with the water. But no consultant was available to, to tell me that he could actually control that in such a fashion that the person... Without waiting the people. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That was before they came up, you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the guys from Canada. The, the laminar flow. Right, yeah. the laminar flow. Yeah. So that project was abandoned. Yeah. So there were things that we could have done then that there were no consultants. So I was very much aware uh. of the need of having people like in between, say, the architect, mm -hmm. who's not an expert in water feature design, right. and the contractor, yeah. who just normally keeps doing the same thing that his own experience taught him. Mm -hmm. So we needed this other entity yeah. in between the water feature designer. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, that's kind of where that's we how came we, in. You know, we connected. <laughs> yeah, that's how right. you and Tisherman connected. Probably through David. So well, back up a bit. So who, who came up with the idea of flushing out the water with the concrete deck? Because it's done very common today. But back then, just in the early 90s, nobody was doing that. Well, I, I had to invent something. That was you. Yeah, because, um, you know, it was a remodel. Mm. It, it was a traditional pool, you know, with the water line maybe five inches below the edge. Uh -huh. And uh, the owner, Jim Goldstein, 
happened to travel to Thailand and he stayed in a hotel in Thailand mm -hmm. that uh, had the, this feature of the infinity edge mm -hmm. and he wanted to convert his pool to an infinity edge. Of course. Yeah. So then how do you do that? Yeah, with, when the, you're surrounded, and you're, you're landlocked. Besides, I knew that the, the edge, the existing edge, was not perfectly level. Mm -hmm. But of course, if you have this four or five inches to play with, you don't see, you don't even notice if it's half inch off. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But with the water line, that doesn't you can't lie. Can't cheat that. Has, <laughs> has to be absolutely perfect. So yeah. I thought the only way would be to add on, you know, make the pool smaller. Mm -hmm and add on uh, a stainless edge. On the way up, uh, talking about that particular detail, and I remember how it was done in, in the stainless steel gutter that was mm -hmm. set on top of the pool beam and that little nozzle piece that came up that the water falls into. So I, right. I remember And then that it well. has to be thin. Yeah, and thin, exactly. Mm -hmm. and, and the other trick that, that I've never done in my career, and I've never seen it done since, is the face of that stainless steel, there's that intersection that, that, that meets to the gunite wall or concrete wall below, that's plastered all the way up. It is a mm. pebble tech plaster, if I remember correctly. Yes. We so they had to bond not only to the cement, which is designed to do the cementitious material bonding to another, but then bonding that to a, a stainless mm. element is that was a challenge. But he pulled it off, if I remember correctly. And there was one other thing that I wanted to ask you about. And it shows a better photograph of it there, but. Can you tell me about the sink in the master bedroom? Oh I yes, that was that. a John Laudner That was idea. a lot detail. This used to be a storage room. The lower floor was a, just a storage room. Uh -huh. And the owner decided he wanted to convert it to, um, to the master bedroom. Mm -hmm. And uh, a master bath, of course, where the, all the glass was done beautifully. Mm -hmm. But he wanted to see the view uh, because you can see all the way to the ocean yep. on a clear yep. day, and at the same time uh, have a you be able to to shave in front of a mirror, mm -hmm. but he did not want the the mirror or the sink to block the view. So uh, he asked Lockner, "How can we do that? Simple, a glass sink, okay. and the mirror would retract." So you could swivel the mirror. At that time, a great guy called uh, an Australian, called Andrew Nolan, who was working on it. Here you have a very good picture of it. See? Yeah. The glass sink, and uh, this is uh, the faucet. Basically. Yeah, that's a, it's a stainless bar. Right? Yeah, a waterfall that mm -hmm. type that that was again before it became a fad. So the water just rolls down the glass, and here it goes outside. It rolls under. The glass was treated, so yeah. um, you know the water would just slide off. And I'm remembering it now and, better. And, and, this, I, I, and this is the swivel type mirror. For the so mirror, you could just bend it against yeah. the wall. Amazing stuff. That was just an absolutely incredible house. Uh, oh, it still is, know. and he kept adding. You know, after. After uh, Lautner passed away, uh, uh, during, we had, we during had one a of the remodels of the house, he passed away. Correct? I mean, I was there in '93. In uh, yeah, '94 he passed away. Yeah. But he was ill for the last few years of mm. his life. He had um, it was called neuropathy mm. that affected the nerves going to both legs. Mm -hmm. So he couldn't walk anymore. He was oh, wow. confined to a wheelchair. That was no fun. That was really terrible. He felt miserable on account of that. Mm. Otherwise, he was a very healthy man all his life. Mm. Mm. But then I continued after he passed away. A couple of existing projects that the client, you know, was running them. And clients mm -hmm. trusted me. I mean, they knew me for ages. Yeah. When he published his book, uh, a few months before he passed away, he wrote in the book, you know, he, among other people, you know, to whom he dedicated the book, he wrote to Elena Rowett, who was, um, well, my, the chief architect in my office for over 20 years. 
Elena, uh, thank you again so much for, okay, well, for, for the entire time that you spent with us. It was, uh, all right. again, a pleasure. And welcoming us into your home is just uh, outstanding. Thank you. I want to kind of get into more of the pumps. Uh, you know, the variable speed pumps, the variable flow pumps. You know, when they first came out, I think it was like 2005 or 2006, they were like pretty, it was a huge leap in, in pump technology. Uh, I know other industries had had it around for a little bit before the, the pool industry, before you guys got into it. But you guys were the first ones that came out with it. And I think that really just changed the whole dynamic of energy efficiency. Um, so the great thing about the variable speed pumps is you can do multiple things with the same pump. Um, so kind of get into that. Uh, what, what do most people use those variable speed pumps for? I use them on everything, whether it's my main filtration pump or water feature pumps. I rarely ever buy a single speed pump anymore. Yeah, thanks, Grant. Those are, those are, you have a lot of good questions there. So the variable speed flow pump technology, which started back in 2005, the whole idea behind it at the time was that they were, when they would have a pool and a spa, they would always, on that spa, sometimes it was a single pump system. So we had to have two horsepower pumps running seven days a week just to filter, right. to wait for the homeowner to come home and use the spa. So that's a huge energy uh, kill on the system because it's gonna eat up a lot of energy at, at, uh, at a two horsepower pump just for filtering when all we need is about 32 to 35 gallons a minute. If, if this right. vessel is hydraulically plumbed well. Right, correct, yeah. And that's a big if. Yeah. <laughs> uh, back in the day, it used right. to be all inch and a half. And right. To get the industry to go to two was a big chore. And right. now we want two and a half and three. Right. So it's, it, and the nice thing about the variable speed pumps or variable speed flow, you know, the whole vessel's based on flow. The, so the cleaners are based on how much flow is going to go in order for it to operate. The same for uh, the skimmers. We want to X amount of flow across the weir of that skimmer to surface, pull all of the surface dirt off of the vessel so that the cleaner doesn't have to work as hard uh, below the, uh, the water level. Right. So that uh, the, the pumps made a big difference that we were able to set the gallons per minute or the RPMs to facilitate how well that that vessel is going to be, uh, be, be op uh, operated at. Right. So when you look at every motor in the swimming pool business, whether it's a half horsepower or all the way up to a three horsepower, is 3,450, 3,450 RPMs. Every motor is the same. Right? Yeah, the great thing about uh, the efficiency of those variable you know, speed pumps and the, and the variable flow pumps is that uh, you, know, you, can, you can get that sweet spot you know, on the variable speed where you know, I do a lot of water and transit things, whether they're like overflows or, or negative edges or just like if I'm doing a fountain that really needs to have a unique speed on it. You know, with, all, with the plumbing sizes that I do, now you mentioned something about you know, two and a half and three inch. I, like, uh, anything, I don't like anything less than three inch. You know, I do a lot of four inch and uh, six inch so I like to I love to play around with it when I start up uh, you know a pool like we have a lot of water and transit like overflow edges and I just love to sit there and play with that pump a little bit and just dial down that perfect speed to make the water you know flow over you know on all on all sides at the lowest possible speed you know for the most efficiency I get a real thrill when I see the wattage you know that's being used and it's like oh well this is no more than a you know than a lamp you know in, in, inside the house so absolutely I, I tell you that that pump is a game changer all the way through given that every vessel that's ever been built and will be built in the future that it's a snowflake I mean it's it's, it's as different as a snowflake and the plumbing as as anything could be out there and that pump can adapt to whatever it needs to be so that means you can change those gallons per minute to facilitate whatever that event needs to happen on how that event needs to look so with especially with uh, with IntelliCenter now and a new digital valve operator it allows us to set up for, with one pump multiple speeds are flows that will facilitate that look of different water features and bubblers or vanishing edge, all with the push of a button that the analytics are built into it that when you push that button, it automatically facilitates that to happen. And with the flow, especially with the flow, that if you say you have to have 40 gallons a minute, as the filter gets dirtier and dirtier, it will increase the RPMs to make sure that the flow stays consistent.
Great. And that's a great thing, especially for consumers that sometimes take care of their own pools or even some uh, guys that don't really clean the filter as much as they should. <laughs> um, you know, that works out really well to keep up that maintain under that flow. So, um, you know, the great thing I also like about the variable speed pump is you guys have come out with like smaller models of them. So they don't always have to be like 220 gallons a minute or 160 gallons a minute. You know, like with the I1 pump, it's 120 gallons a minute. So if you have an older pool that, you know, had that one inch and a half plumbing on it, you can actually buy that uh, I1 and actually actually find that sweet spot, you know, toward the hydraulics will actually work better because you're able to put a pump on that more matchly sizes the size sure. of the hydraulics. Sure. And, uh, you know, that's a lot with the safety factors too, because, mm -hmm. you know, unfortunately line velocity, if you have a big pump on there, like the two horsepower pumps that we all used to put on, you know, prior to the variable speeds coming out, um, you know, that line velocity was pretty incredible on a two inch line. If you're putting a two horse whisper flow on there. So we're able to really get more safe and that we can, you know, we can find that sweet spot and that speed and lock it in you know so our main drains uh you know especially on older pools that don't get renovated so our main drains are safer and uh, our lane velocities we can slow those way down so and under new construction when you really need massive amount of water flow you got the xf 